I don't know if you remember hearing these words uh, when you were younger. Um, there will be a test over this material. Yeah, right. Oh, boy. We don't like those words. We don't like testing. I was not a model student, believe it or not, whenever I was in school. I did exactly what I had to do to barely graduate. Testing wasn't my thing. I had uh, anxiety when it came to testing. I would get knots in my stomach. I would stress over the answers, second guess everything I put down, spend way too much time on one question making sure I had it just right before I would move on to the next, and then ultimately I would find that, hey, I've run out of time. Uh, Probably because I didn't know the material very well, because I was too interested in being social uh, rather than educating myself. But as I I got older, I'm not going to say have gotten, as I have gotten older, as I have grown up a little bit, um... There are some tests that I have taken where I was immersed in the material, where I knew it, where there was no question about what the answer was. It just immediately clicked with me. I worked in uh, a med- the medical field for a little while in the hospital uh, as, a, as a pharmacy technician, and in order to do that, I had to be nationally certified. Um, luckily, I was able to work for months before I had to take that, that exam where I had to know all of that material, but that was something I was so stressed out about. I was so nervous about taking that test because I knew if I didn't pass it, I, could not, I couldn't continue in, in my job. I remember the first time I took the test, it was on the campus of IUPUI, and I walked into the room, and there was probably 150 other pharmacy technicians or hopeful pharmacy technicians in that room to take the test. And I, the, the proctor handed everything out, uh, was getting ready to start the test, and he said, you have two hours to take this test. I'm like, great, I'm going to throw up. Two hours of taking a test, that is not, not my thing. Probably 35 minutes into the testing, I took my material back up to him and laid it on his desk, and he looked at me and he said, did you give up, are you done? And I said, oh no, I'm finished. And I left. All the other people are still sitting in the room thinking like, Either he's a genius or he just totally gave up. Second time I took the test was, was uh... no, I really passed the test that time, okay? But I had to take it again later because I was out of that area for a little while um, and let my certification expire. So I had to retake the test not long, uh, probably seven or eight years ago. Um, and I can remember that morning. The, the only thing that I was really stressed out about about that morning was I knew that that cup of coffee that I had with me was not going to be hot whenever I got back to the car. I couldn't take it with me. I took this, that test in Terre Haute at a testing center uh, where I got to do it on a computer and it was timed. And I, I remember parking across the street, leaving my coffee in the car and going in to take the test, sat down to the te- take the test. And when I got back to the car, my cup of coffee was still as hot as it was whenever I left it. It took me 20 minutes to take the test, to take a two-hour test, because I knew the material. I had knowledge of the practice of what, what, I, was, what I was doing. I knew the law. I understood, and I could confidently answer any question that was on that test. I had a confidence about me because I was immersed into that. Sometimes in life, 
we are faced with tests of different kinds. Tests that cause us to have anxiety. Tests that cause us to fear and worry. They make us uneasy. They make us question what it is that we know and everything that we have been taught. Because we want to make sure that we get it right. Today we're going to look at a different kind of test. A test that we kind of take part in, but it's not a test necessarily we're taking, but a test that we're giving. We're in a, the second week of a series called Rich Toward God, where we're, we're looking at what it means to really fully trust in God and to, to return to him as he has asked. And it, it focuses a whole lot in on our financial stewardship. We're getting ready to, to kick off another campaign to help uh, be responsible and, and pay for our, our facility that we meet in as a church So we just want to be reminded of some basic principles in Scripture whenever it comes to our our finances. Last week, Jerry talked about, hey, money's not about how much stuff you can accumulate with it. It's It's not about that. It's not about the stuff that you have. He hinted at the concept of tithing, and we're going to look at that just a little bit more today. And by the way, this is cake. We're going to be here a while, so I brought snacks, okay? We're going to look at that concept just a little bit more. And what I want to consider this morning is our, our courageous generosity and the courageous generosity that God has called us to. And some of you are probably sitting here thinking, I knew it was going to be about money. Every time I go to church, all they talk about is money. It's all the preacher ever wants. It's all they ever ask for. It's all they ever talk about. We need to pay for this. We need to pay for that. I should have stayed home. Some of you are probably going to turn me off completely now that you know it's about money and you don't get cake. <laughs> but it's, it's a big deal. Money's a big deal. And even though we don't like hearing it, we don't like being told you can take care of this area of your life better, we need to be told you can take care of this area of your life better sometimes. It's a big deal because it's the quickest way to your heart. And I think that's why we guard it so closely. In scripture, there are over 500 verses concerning prayer. There are over 500 verses concerning faith. And there are over 2,000 verses that talk about money and possessions. Jesus taught about this in 40% of the parables, 16 out of 38 parables concerned money and possessions. And I think if Scripture gives it that much focus, then maybe we need to give it some focus as well. It is a big deal, our money and our use of it. And I would say that sometimes we have this negative attitude whenever we hear somebody say, let me talk to you about your financial situation. Let me talk to you about what you're doing with your money. I think this negative attitude comes in sometimes because Satan's like, don't let him do that. Don't let them influence what you're going to do with your money for the kingdom because it's a dangerous thing. He knows the power that will come from God's people centering centering around this generous attitude whenever it comes to our giving. When we discover these principles governing financial stewardship, it probably scares him because he knows that the kingdom of God could be unlocked to grow in ways that we could never imagine. Now, nobody's a natural-born giver. We are all actually natural-born takers. 
We come into this world in a fallen sin state, and at the heart of that is this selfishness, is this selfish tendency that we have. But if we're to model the character of God, we have to break away from that because God is generous, God is giving. We see that over and over again in Scripture. And he wants us to be the same way. He wants us to be generous. He is generous beyond our ability to imagine, and he calls us to be that way as well. You have been given to freely, so freely you should give. Our generosity is our opportunity to allow God to show himself in our lives in radical ways. And courageous generosity is our decision to take God at his word and to obediently test him. This is the one thing I want us to remember when it comes to our giving and our generosity, and that's as God's uh, character is proven through lives of courageous generosity. Now, if testing is a way that we prove our knowledge in a specific area, if it's how we prove our ability to function in a certain environment and in certain circumstances, then how are, how are we to allow God to prove his character? Much of the same way, we test him. And that may seem strange. Malachi 3 is where we're going to be at today, uh, where we actually find those, those very words. This, this concept is laid out for us when it comes to our obedient generosity. The, the concept of testing God doesn't seem right to us. Seems strange that we say we need, to, we need to test God. The Israelites back then were required to give a full 10% of their crops or their income into the temple storehouse. The temple storehouse was the church. To bring 10% to the church is another way to say that. According to scripture and according to what God says to his people here, we test God when we tithe. So, some more context into this passage before we read it together. The entire book of Malachi uh, is, is talking about the, the moral and spiritual failures of God's people. They are not living up to their end of the covenant, of the agreement that they have made. When they worshiped, they offered blind and crippled and diseased animals as sacrifices. And when it came to teaching the word of God, the religious teachers, they, would, uh, they were indifferent so they would allow people to stray from God's word without, without comment, without accountability. And in this setting, God is expressing his displeasure. He's rebuking them sharply for their lack of faithfulness to give a tithe. And even though they are blatantly violating the covenant... And he is recognizing that the Father reaches out to them with love and mercy, and he invites them to return to a fellowship with him. So Malachi 3, starting in verse 6 and reading through verse 12, says this, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and, I have, and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. 
Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not, not be enough room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. God's call for us to be generous doesn't always mean that we're going to have to give everything. But what God is saying, that in your generosity, in the, in the basis, in the standard for your generosity, which is a tithe, I want you to, to test me. We're probably not going to be called to give away everything that we have and live with next to nothing. But I think that every one of us as a Christ follower is called to this mandate of tithing. And we're just going to touch on it just a little bit this morning, just a basic concept before we, we break it down later on in this series. So the question that I want to ask this morning is how do I, how do I live courageously generous? Because I think there's some courage that's involved in taking this step towards tithing. The unchanging nature of God and acknowledging that is the first way that we live generously. We have to acknowledge that he is unchanging. It's mentioned time and again throughout scripture, over and over. We're told that he is the same always. And I think that it's safe to say that if God's character does not change, then we can assume that his standards and his expectations for his people haven't changed either. He has the same. Numbers twenty three nineteen says, God is not human that he should lie. He is not a human being that he should change his mind. Isaiah 40, verse 8 states, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. David declares in Psalm 102, 25 through 27, In the beginning you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be discarded. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. Psalm 90, verse 2 says, Before the mountains were born... Or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Now, I I firmly believe that when it comes to our courageous generosity, that God's expectation of us has never changed. It has always been the same. It's been the same for all time. It does not matter if it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Whenever it comes to, to how we give, God's standard and his unchanging character are eternal. And in that character, I believe that he has expectations that we fall short of quite often. I don't think we meet them because we have a hard time seeing beyond our abilities. What we can do on our own. This is all I can do. This is all I can give. And when we do that, we limit our view of God, we're limiting what he is capable of and we limit his ability to work through us and in us. And when it comes to being courageously generous, most of us are not going to be able to give away large portions of our income. It's just not possible. A lot of times because there's more month at the end of our money and we have to stretch that as far as it can go. However, I believe that when we acknowledge his unchanging character and his standards for us, that he will provide for us and help us to maybe not have more, but maybe perhaps manage better what it is that we do have. 
So what are the standards that we need to remember then when it comes to this courageous generosity? Well, I think that like Jerry said last week, we need to start at the, the lowest rung of the ladder. That's tithing is, is the lowest rung. It's not a place that you climb to reach, but it's the standard by which we start as Christ followers. It's tithing. Beginning to live generously means that we begin to practice the obedience of tithing. So there are two things that we have to understand about tithing on the most basic level. And the very first thing is that it's 10%. That's pretty simple. For those of you who are like myself and you are mathematically challenged, God made it fairly simple for you to figure out what a tithe is. You move the decimal point. That's it. So if I have $100 and I move the decimal point one place to the left, what do I have? Come on. $10. See how we can all do this? $10. Not, not difficult. But the problem that we have with that is it's whenever there are too many numbers to the left of the decimal point that we say, whoa, hang on just a second. You know what I could do with that? You know what, that that thing that I've wanted for so long, I could could have that. I could pay this off. I I could pay that off. That's a lot of money to give up when there's so many other things that I could do with it. We think of what we can do with it instead of surrendering to God and allowing him to do more with it. See, a lot of times he he blesses us abundantly. That's what I call cake, an abundant blessing. It's, it's, our our table is full and all all God is doing is coming to us and saying, 10%, 10% is all I want. And so we we come to God and we say, okay, 10%. Here, just take it. A lot of times we may be crying as we're doing this, but I'm not, I can't cry on cue. So that's not going to happen. We, but we say, just take it, God. 10% is what you want. Just, just take the 10%. And God says, thanks for being cheerful about all of that. We, we don't want to, this seems like a lot to us. And all the time that we're surrendering this to God, he says, hey, look what's still on your table. Look what you still have. You're, you're worried about giving up this little bit. If I was to take $100, If I gave Peyton $100, I would blow his mind, right? But what if I said, hey, Peyton, give me 10 of that back? He's going to be like, I knew you were crazy. 15 seconds ago, you didn't have anything. You were broke. All I'm asking is for a little bit back. That's hard for us to, to part with once we have possession of it. It's hard for us to let go. In our text, what God was demanding of his people is the very least that was required. The very least. They were actually called to give more than this to to festivals, to feasts, to sacrifices, totaling uh, roughly 23% is what the Jewish people were called to give. And I've heard it said countless times that we are not required to give 10% because we no longer live under the law. People will make that argument. 
We don't live under the law. We have been liberated from the law by the sacrifice of Jesus. We don't have an obligation to the church because we live under grace. Some say that, and I would like to say, okay, if that's the way that you want to go, let's talk about what it means to live and give under grace. You, you can take that stance, but it doesn't yield the result that you think it will for itself because grace demands more than the law. By saying that we live solely under grace, we're actually raising the expectation on ourselves to more than a tithe. To go above what a tithe is because grace demands more. Jesus reminds us of that in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, he says, You've heard it said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, Anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus is reminding them of the law, but he's saying, hey, guess what? It goes a whole lot further than just that. Grace requires more than the law did. Jesus raises the bar. It expects more. But we all need a starting point. We all need a place that we can center around that's easy to understand. So for some of us, like myself, that's easier to, to figure. But the tithe is not the place that we stay. It's a place that we grow from in our courageous generosity. And the second thing that we have to acknowledge about tithing is that it is first. It is first. There's lots of important financial precedent established in Exodus 13 talking about this first. God says, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine, Exodus 13, 2. The first belongs to God, and he states that over 16 times in Scripture. He goes on in that chapter to say in verse 13, that every first of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. You have to understand the concept of the firstborn through the eyes of giving something up. And why that is so important. According to Old Testament law, the firstborn was to either be sacrificed or something was to be sacrificed in its place to redeem it. When we give our first fruits to God, when we, when we give before we know what the future looks like or what bills are going to come in, then we're saying we're trusting you to redeem the rest. To redeem the rest. And that's, that's very powerful. Any first thing that we give is never lost, but any first thing that's not given is always lost. So God wants to prove his character through our courageous generosity by starting with the standard of, of tithing. So we're going to give 10% and we're going to give our first, right? So what does that look like? Let's say that we live in a culture where we are paid in cake. Does that sound like a great place to live? Yes. Um, so, 
this is, this is my paycheck. We're going to say this is my paycheck, so I'm going to have to pay my bills, all right? Everybody got a bulletin whenever they came in, right? You're going to need that here in just a second. So if I'm going to, I'm going to take this, I'm going to pay my bills. Um, I got to pay uh, for my car. Who, who am I paying my car payment to? If you got your bulletin somewhere in there, it says car payment. Alan Iker, I love to pay you. I need some help. Where's Dan? There's Dan. Don't get up, Alan. Somebody's going to serve this to you. Oh, you got, there's two more coming. Okay, I got to pay, uh, I got to pay my rent. Who's got my, who am I paying my, who's my landlord? Who am I paying my rent to? Wayne. Keep your hand up. If, keep your hand up. All right, right back there. Mr. IU back here. All right, I got to keep my lights on. Who am I, who's my electric bill? Who's my electric bill? Jim Barnaby's my electric bill back there, looks like. Oh, the all-important cable. Who, who's, who's my cable bill? Casey, don't get so excited, Casey. It's... Oh, how about water? Who, who's my water bill? My watch, Sue. Sue right over there, Miss Sue. Keep your hand up, Sue, so he can see where you're at. Oh, Visa. Who's my, who's my Visa bill? Oh, there, right over there, it's Dave. Okay. Um, cell phone. Who's my cell phone bill? Who's my cell phone bill? Sewer. Hey, who's my sewer? Right over there. Yep. I believe so. And insurance. All right, who am I paying my insurance to? Pam? Sweet. Did, did they... Everybody just wants cake, okay? There's a, maybe I didn't explain that thoroughly. There's a word in your bulletin, and if that was there, somebody may have got your cake. Sorry. Okay, so I've paid all my bills. I've got what's left, and, and now it's time to go through the rest of my month, right? So if you're like me, there are some priorities that have to take place with, with what we have left. And number one on our list of priorities is... Um, Bowling. I have to go to the bowling alley. Hey, you can eat that cake, by the way. I'm going to eat my cake. You can share it with people if you want to. That's fine. So, I've got to go bowling. Got other things i got to take care of, like it's BOGO at Shoe Carnival. That's always a priority for me. Um... Man, I wish I had, I've got something to drink somewhere, okay. Other stuff that, that, I, that are priorities in our, in our life sometimes maybe if you're, if you're a guy, I gotta get some fishing stuff. I gotta, I gotta go fishing, I gotta go hunting, um, all those kinds of things. Maybe sometimes it's, Old Navy's my other weakness. I don't know if that's my place to hang out sometimes, Old Navy. This is a great place. So we, we go through our month, and we just keep, we keep eating away here and there and a little bit of everything. And suddenly we realize tomorrow's Sunday. Jerry's going to ask me for money. 
I don't know what I'm going to do. I got to get something. Otherwise, I'm going to feel guilty. So this is what we do. We give God what's left over. I don't have a dog. But my understanding is that most people give their leftovers to their dog. I don't think that's something that honors the father. Just giving him what's left after we've done with it everything that we want to do. He doesn't want our leftovers. And I think if that's really all we're going to offer him, he's probably going to say to us, I don't even want it. He wants to be first. Our courageous generosity starts not by giving our money to him, but by giving him our heart. And that's what we're doing whenever we give to him first. So as we understand this character and what he demands from us, we have to also understand that, that unwavering challenge. And we have to accept this unwavering challenge to, to put him first to give him 10%, and by doing those things, we're accepting this challenge of testing God, of allowing him to prove who he is. He says to us, let me show you that I'm faithful. Let me show you that I'm going to provide for you. Now, we can come at this with two different attitudes whenever it comes to testing God, whenever it comes to tithing to him. We can come with an entitled expectation, or we can come with humble confidence. God doesn't want us to come in and throw money down in the offering plate and say, there you go, God. Now what are you going to do? Now what are you going to give to me? I put a 50 in there. Now what? That's not what he's looking for. He doesn't want us to come in and say, show me the blessing. If I'm going to give anything to you, I expect a blessing back. He doesn't want us to come with arrogance or expectation That's not the premise of the challenge. He, he, he wants us to come with this humble confidence, with the assurance that as we give sacrificially out of obedience and not arrogance, that he is going to supply our needs. This word, this word test uh, can be used to, to refer to a number of acts. It can, it can be used to either be, be positive or negative. Implying testing or challenging is used to describe God testing Israel in the desert. Elsewhere, it's used to refer to men challenging other men. But in this context, it's, it's difficult to determine whether the testing is positive or negative. Perhaps, maybe, it's an allowance of a negative action to accomplish a positive goal. The glorification of God and the restoration of Israel. God is... In essence, saying, go ahead and test me. Go ahead, be obedient to me, and I will open the floodgates of blessing on you. See, this is more than just a challenge, but it's also an invitation to restoration. At the beginning of the text, we see that he refers to, to this group that he's addressing as the descendants of Jacob. And that's different than he would have referred to them in other places in Scripture as the children of Israel. 
When God refers to them this way as descendants of Jacob, it's a rebuke for their disobedience. It's a reference to the name of their forefather before they received a blessing from God. Even in their rebellion, God was remaining faithful, just as he was to Jacob. He says, test me by repenting and returning. Repent and return, and I will be faithful, and I will restore you. Over a couple times in this text, we see, too, that there's some, there's some confusion whenever God says, you're robbing from me. You're stealing from me. Would a man rob God? And they're like, well, how are we doing that? It's not a, not a question of clarification, but more of, of they're disputing the accusation. They're saying, we're not doing that. What are you talking about? They don't feel at all that they're far from God. They say, we're not lost. And he says, but, but you are, and we fall into that same trap sometimes. We don't feel like we are lost. I mean, I can't be far from God. I go to church every Sunday. I teach a Sunday school class. My kids are in Christian school. I volunteer every free minute that I have. How can I be far from God? And God says, you may not think that you have strayed. You may not think that you are far from me. But because of some areas of disobedience in your life, you are. And God's challenge to us is not only to return to him in this courageous generosity, but also to return to him our hearts, to keep moving closer to him. And it's when our hearts become numb to his purposes that we have this problem seeing that we're far from him. When we don't understand. And sometimes it may not even be a cold heart. It may just be that we're disconnected. It may just be that we're not plugged in, that we're straying from spending time in his word every day. Sometimes we're just so busy and we fill our lives up that all we can throw at him are the leftover minutes or dollars or the leftover energy. And we're not going to see his blessing in our lives until we allow him to prove his character. And whenever we allow him to prove his character by accepting this challenge, then we start to allow his unimaginable blessings in our lives. The challenge that God gives us all rests in what are we doing with the abundance that he has already given? What are we doing with the abundance that he has already given? We're not going to recognize what we have for what it is until we give it away, until we start to give it away. The term floodgates that's used here is the same word used in Genesis chapter 7 verse 11 that talks about God opening up the sky to release the floodwaters that covered the earth. God's blessing will be excessively poured out on them for their faithful and courageous generosity. Now, I think it's important that we have to say that that blessing that God pours out on us may not be financial wealth and prosperity. I don't think that's what we're being told here. I know that in my own life that I have seen that as I am faithful in giving, that doesn't always mean that he's going to give me more money. That's not what he's talking about. It may just mean that he's going to show me better how to handle what it is I already had. It may just mean that he's going to make what he's already blessed me with go further than I could have made it go on my own. It doesn't mean new cars. It doesn't mean fancy houses. It doesn't mean a new wardrobe. 
when we're courageously generous and obediently faithful in our giving, maybe we just have a better understanding for what he has already blessed us with. Changes our perspective. The blessing that he gives us may not always be financial freedom and independence. That may not be it at all. The blessing may just be the realization that everything that we need, we have. That he has provided for us. We just didn't recognize it that way. And we fail to see that. But when we surrender to God the blessed portion to redeem the whole, because the 10% is the blessed portion of what God has given us, and it redeems the whole. When we surrender to him that, that's whenever we see his unimaginable blessings in our lives. When we're courageously generous, he promises to redeem and he also promises to protect. To protect and to continue to provide. So maybe our obedience in accepting God's challenge is to give him the first in order for him to protect what has been redeemed. But the money's not the point when it comes to our generosity and our courageous generosity. It's the joy that we receive from giving. It's the power from living in obedience. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. We're not saying give more so that God can just pour money into your bank account. But it's a lay down your life kind of challenge. Be obedient. Surrender the thing that's most precious to you. And as you give, God will bless. And probably the reason that we fail to recognize some things when it comes to God's blessing is because the most important blessing is, is the enlargement of his kingdom may not be something in our personal life, a material possession or more stuff. But man, it's the empowering of the ministry. It's churches growing. It's broken people becoming whole. All because of courageous generosity. We learn so much from the, the actions or the inactions of Israel and the promises of God. We read some of those this morning. We can see that our faithful obedience to God and his, his mandates merits us uh, his unimaginable blessing. Maybe a different perspective to see what it is that we have. We also learn that what, what defines us is not what we have or what we think we've earned. Rather, it's what we do with the resources that God provides. What, what are we doing with this redeemed portion? I don't think anybody's ever going to stand before God and say, man, if I could do it all again, I would have spent more money on me. Maybe they would say, if I had invested more in the kingdom, if I had surrendered more to your purposes. Financial activity, just like all other actions, evidences whether you are kingdom-minded. And what we're going to do as we, as we get close to the end of this series, and I did not say this in, in first service, and I'm beating myself up because of it. We're going to issue a, just a, an ask. I'm not going to say um, a, a requirement. But we, we make pledges every, every three to five years on being good stewards of our facility and being able to pay off our mortgage. But it's not about paying off our mortgage. It's about giving to the kingdom. God will decide what happens with what's given. 
It's about expanding the kingdom. So my challenge to you is, hey, let's not consider in a couple of weeks, what can I give that's above and beyond what I'm giving now? It's my challenge to you is, how can I change so that I can tithe? How can I change so that I am giving God first what he asks so that I can realize his blessings? There's a a statistic, again, that I forgot to share in first service. Um, If all of us who go to church in the United States quit working and went on welfare and tithed our welfare benefits, giving would increase by 35%. Imagine what would happen if God's church was obediently faithful and everyone understood this concept of tithing in firsts, of courageous generosity, of trusting God, not knowing what tomorrow is going to look like, but building the kingdom through our obedience. In this passage and in the rest of the Bible, we recognize God is faithful, his unchanging character, his unwavering challenge, his unimaginable blessings. They're repeated throughout scriptures. He's faithful to his covenant. And in another covenant that he has made, he gave his first and he gave his best in his son. And he gave his son to redeem his people. God just asks that we follow the same example. Give me your best, give me your first He is faithful to that covenant. Israel would fail. They would fall again. We're going to fail. We're not going to maybe live up to this standard all the time. But in Christ, we see the one who gave generously of himself, even to death, out of obedience to the Father. And in his sacrifice, what he became was the generous outpouring of heavenly blessing bestowed on all of God's people. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so uh, confused maybe sometimes when it comes to, to your, what you ask of us and what do, how do we know what we're supposed to do and where we're supposed to start when it comes to our generosity. But God, there's really clarity right here in your word. If most of the time we would just open it up and read it. You ask us, God, to, to give you our first and this, this portion that will, will redeem the rest, this 10%. God, we want to be obedient just as Christ was. We want to please you with the way that we live. So help us to, to grow in.